Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been a while since I've said, I haven't said Romans, right? <laughs> uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're not going to get very far in the letter because this one is going to be more of just, I want to give you an introduction to the book, kind of give you a high-level overview of the book so that some of these themes, when we get to them eventually through our study, Lord willing, you'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that from the introduction, hopefully. Uh, otherwise, I don't want to get it, you know, come at this cult. So this is going to be, you know, your handout, you've got four points there. Basically, we're going to give you the background to the letter. We're going to give you the background to the Church of Corinth, an overview of 1 Corinthians. That's going to be sort of a very high-level overview. And then we'll just look a little bit at... Uh, the greeting there in the first three verses of chapter 1. So I'm calling this study, for lack of a better phrase, guidance for a struggling church. Okay, Guidance for a struggling church. Because what you're going to see as we go through 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthian church is struggling. It's not struggling because of persecution. It's not struggling because it's a poor church. It's not struggling because of internal theological strife so much as it is struggling because of its own arrogance, its own uh, overconfidence, uh, and its own immaturity. Um, but as we look at this letter, the first thing, let's just get some of the background information out of the way. Uh, the author, uh, 1 Corinthians, like all of Paul's letters, opens up by identifying Paul as the author of this letter, as you see in verse 1. Uh, and I'm reading from King James because it's, this is my dad's old beat-up Bible. I'm going to be using this for a while, but uh, bear with me. Uh, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So Pauline authorship of 1 Corinthians has not really seriously been disputed by scholars. Most scholars, even the liberal ones who don't look at the Bible as the authoritative word of God, just look at it as the writings of men, do not dispute that Paul the Apostle wrote 1 Corinthians. It's one of the undisputed or indisputed letters. Um, and as usual, we can kind of get an idea here of what is going on in the church by how Paul identifies himself. He identifies himself as an apostle, not of men, but of Jesus Christ. Not by the will of men, but by the will of God. So that word apostle uh, is apostolos in the Greek. It has a generic and a specific definition. Generically, an apostle is a messenger, someone who is sent in the stead of someone else. So there's nothing special in that. If I sent somebody to deliver a message for me, that person, in a sense, would be an apostle. But it also has a very specific sense, a capital A apostle, one of the 12 that were designated by Jesus Christ, called out specifically by Christ uh, for the service of the church. They are foundational to the church. As Paul will say in Ephesians 2, that the church is built on the foundation of Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets. So these capital A apostles, these are ones specifically called forth by Jesus himself. And you're like, well, was Paul called forth by Jesus? We know the twelve were. And then Judas dies, so they're at 11. Then, then they vote for their own replacement, kind of, sort of. But we know Paul was called specifically because we see that in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus Christ himself converted Paul and said, you will be 
my messenger, my apostle to the Gentile nations. So Paul was called specifically by Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now, all of this indicates to us that what Paul is going to be doing here in the Corinthian letters, particularly, you see it a lot more in 2 Corinthians, but what he's doing here and what he'll do in 2 Corinthians is he is defending his apostolic ministry. You're like, why is he defending his apostolic ministry? Well, as we'll see later on in 1 Corinthians, and as we see specifically in 2 Corinthians, Paul was under attack. He was under attack by saying, well, you're not really an apostle because look at yourself. You, you, you know, you're, mess, you're, you're not a good speaker. Your message is, you know, you're, you're not very good at delivering your message. You're always undergoing some kind of trial or persecution. You're being beaten. You don't take money for your ministry. You must not be a very popular teacher because we have all these other teachers who are very well spoken. They're very eloquent. They're very popular. And they, you know, if we pay them, that means they must be really good, right? I mean, if you hire someone to do a job and you pay them, you know, a, a very exorbitant rate, you expect to get a good job done. So Paul was under attack. His apostolic ministry was under attack. So he begins by saying, look, I'm not doing this because I want to do this. I'm doing this because I've been called forth by Jesus Christ by the will of God himself. Now, Paul also mentions here this man named Sosthenes. He refers to him as our brother. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is a co-author of the letter. It just means that Sosthenes was with Paul when he wrote this letter. Now, we don't know for certain But it is quite possible this is the same Sosthenes we see in Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 17. So this is Paul's ministry as he is actually founding the church in Corinth. And in verse 17 there, we see then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared nothing of these things. So Sosthenes is a... He's a Greek. He is a Gentile guy who sort of like oversees the synagogue in Corinth. And he was beaten by a group of Greek people before the the judge there. So it's quite possible this is the same Sosthenes that Paul is with Paul here. They were upset at Paul's ministry. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 18 a little later in a little more detail. But it's quite possible this is the same man there. So the author is Paul. Who are the recipients? Well, the recipients of Paul's letter was the church in the city of Corinth. We see that in verse 2. So Paul, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he's writing to this group of Christians, this church in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth, we'll look again at Corinth a little more, but the ancient city of Corinth was a major city in the Roman province of Achaia. So if you can kind of think of what the Greek peninsula looks like, you've got a main section that juts out, then there's this little itty-bitty strip of land, and then another section juts out from that. It's Achaia. That's the lower southern part of the Greek peninsula. And that little strip of land that connects the lower part to the upper part is called an isthmus. So there's that connection there. And you were able to take ships and port them from the Aegean Sea into the Mediterranean Sea 
through that isthmus, they were able to sort of, you know, however, the portage the ships across through the land. Not so much a canal, but they were able to kind of roll them through that small strip of land there. So Corinth was a very important city. It used to be a Greek city, a very important Greek city, until they rebelled against the Roman Empire. Then the Romans came in and just trounced the city and destroyed it. And then some years later, they reestablished a Roman colony on the ruins of the Greek city of, Rome, uh, of Corinth. But it was a very major city. It, like I said, it, they had that isthmus that connected the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian Peninsula below it. And that uh, isthmus also allowed them to have business between the Aegean Sea and the Western Mediterranean Sea. So it was a major city for trade. The city was also a hotbed for all kinds of false religion and sexual immorality. Uh, the city at one time contained at least 12 temples to various Greco-Roman gods, including Apollo. And, in, and there's a large hill outside of Corinth called the Acro-Corinth, <coughs> upon which was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And it was said that there were temple prostitutes that would uh, engage in religious or sort of quasi-religious uh, sexual activity there. So a very sexually immoral city, a city with, filled with false religion. Um, and then finally, the city was also steeped in the philosophy of the day. It was a very, I mean, outside of Athens, which is just north of Corinth, it was a city that was very popular for the philosophy of the day, particularly uh, a school of philosophy called Sophism, the Sophists, okay? Now, we hear the word sophistry. It's someone who speaks highly, but it's kind of like saying nothing with a lot of words, okay? Um, but the Sophists were skilled in the art of rhetoric. They were able to make arguments for or against any kind of position. Consider them sort of like lawyers, okay? <laughs> you, know, you know, how many lawyers, you know, how many lawyers at the, you know, what, what's, I forget the, how the joke goes. So it's like, you know, what do you call, what is it? What do you call a thousand lawyers at the bottom of the sea? It's like a good start. That's, uh, you know, the, the, how the joke goes. But So anyway, the city was uh, very well uh, steeped in the philosophy of the day. Now, the date and the occasion of the letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16.8 tells us that Paul was in the city of Ephesus when he wrote this letter. And the date is believed to be near the end of Paul's third missionary journey, which occurred sometime between the years 53 and 57 AD. So most scholars believe this letter was written somewhere around 55 or 56 AD. And we'll go over the contents of 1 Corinthians in a moment, but the occasion for writing this letter can be boiled down to two main things. And when I say the occasion, it's like this is why Paul wrote this letter. And 1 Corinthians is what scholars will call an occasional letter. Not that it's like sometimes it's a letter and sometimes it's not. It's, it means that it's a letter that deals with very specific issues in a very real place, dealing with very real people. Okay, Romans is a letter to a church, but it's more of a general letter and explains theology. Same thing with Ephesians. Ephesians, even though it's directed to the Ephesian church, is kind of general. Paul doesn't get into the specifics of what's going on with the people in that church. 1 Corinthians, very different. It's a very occasional letter. Now, again, two main topics that sort of prompted Paul to write this letter. 
One is that what we'll see, if you, I don't know if it's on the same page for you, but if you look at verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul says to them, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter is because he received a report from the household of this person named Chloe that there were contentions going on in the church of Corinth. And that takes us essentially from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 6 as he's dealing with these contentions in the church. So Paul writes this letter in part to go over what Chloe or at least those from Chloe's household, those issues that they raise that are going on in the church. So he writes to deal with those letters. But then if you flip over to chapter 7, verse 1, Paul begins that chapter by saying, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. And then you'll see that again in chapter 8. Now as touching things offered unto idols and throughout the rest of the book. Apparently, the church of Corinth wrote a letter to Paul detailing questions that they had on various things. Whether in chapter 7 it deals with the topics of marriage. Chapters 8 through 10 deal with the topics of meat offered to idols. Chapters 12 through 14 deal with the issue of spiritual gifts. Chapter 15 deals with the issue of the resurrection. So these are questions that the church of Corinth had. And they wrote a letter to Paul saying, Paul, we've got a lot of questions we need you to answer. So Paul then writes, that's the second main reason why Paul writes this letter. So the first one is to deal with the issues that he hears going on in the church regarding divisions and some other moral issues. And the other is to address the questions that they had raised Um, regarding certain doctrinal issues and so on and so forth. So that is the reason why Paul wrote this letter. So Paul wrote it. He wrote it to the Corinthian church. He wrote it around 55 AD, and he wrote it to address very specific issues that had come up in the church. All right, moving on to the second point, background to the church in Corinth. So, uh, as with many of the churches you see in the New Testament throughout the book of Acts, this was a church that Paul started. He founded this church. He started the church of Corinth during his second missionary journey, which you can read about in the book of Acts, chapter 16 through 18. And at the beginning of that journey, if you kind of recall how the book of Acts is structured, so Paul's first missionary journey is chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council, which deals with an issue of whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised and follow the Jewish dietary laws. And they had a debate over that, and they decided, no, they don't have to be circumcised or follow the dietary laws. And then at the end of that, Paul is now taking this good news out. He wants to go back out to those churches and sort of spread this news. like, hey, we, we came to this decision. You don't need to be circumcised. And all the men went... Okay, that's good. That's one, one less thing I have to worry about. And you don't have to worry about following Jewish dietary laws. They're like, that's great because I like to eat pork. And they were like, I don't want to have to not eat pork. So he's about to go. And if you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul says, we, you know, I'm, I'm with Silas and other people and I want to go this way. But then he says, the Spirit of Christ hindered me from going in this direction. 
And he says, okay, well, then we're going to go over this way. And he says, well, the Spirit of God prevented me from going in this direction. So Paul's like, well, I don't want to go back where I came from. So at night, he gets a vision. He gets a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here, Paul, and preach the gospel here in Macedonia. And Paul's like, I guess that's, that's where we're going to go. So they pack up and they move over to Macedonia. And Paul then begins to minister in the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and eventually Corinth. And you see that in chapters 16 and 17 and 18 of the book of Acts. So after his time in Athens, and if you remember his ministry in Athens, he's now it's interesting because whenever he goes to those cities in Macedonia, he, as, as he usually does, he goes to the Jews first, and then when they eventually reject him, he goes to the Gentiles. And then once he goes to the Gentiles, then the Jews get mad, and they sort of persecute him, and they, they kind of drive him south. <laughs> so, you know, the persecution is happening, you know, and Paul's moving from city to city to city, and it's... In a way, God is using this persecution to spread the gospel from Philippi to Berea to you know, you know, Thessalonica to Athens and then Corinth. The gospel is being spread because of this persecution. But he gets to Athens, if you remember that, right? And he has that great speech on Mars Hill on the Areopagus where he you know, says, you know, I noticed you're a very religious people. And you've got all these statues, statues out here. And you've got, I noticed you even have one to the unknown God, which I call the, the CYA God. Okay, that's the, the one that has no name. In case we missed one, we don't want to offend the unknown God. So then he begins and launches off into a nice, uh, very evangelistic, witnessing, apologetic uh, message as well. But then after Athens, he's chased out of there and he goes uh, to Corinth. So if you could flip over to Acts chapter 18, we'll read a little bit about his exploits in the city of Corinth. So first, uh, the book of Acts chapter 18, I'm going to read uh, probably at least the first 18 verses here. So after these things, that is after his time in Athens, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not your peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in the city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, 
This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look yourselves to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared for none of those things. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea, for he had a vow. Okay. So Paul was there for a year and a half, 18 months, a year and six months. He was there because God told him, it's like, I have many souls here, so speak boldly the gospel and you, will have, and you will bear much fruit. So he continued there. He labored there for, this was up until the time he spent at Ephesus, this was the longest he had ever stayed in one place. Because usually he's getting chased, <laughs> he's getting chased out of from place to place. Here he's able to establish church and establish a, sort of, you know, a, a bit of a ministry there for a year and a half. But obviously, as you saw, there was some conflict there as uh, this, um, you know, some Jews got upset and they, they dragged Paul into court. And of course, Gallio was just like, look, this is about your religion. I, I could care less. <laughs> it's like, if it's about the law, if he's done something wrong according to Roman law, fine. But if he's, you know, if he's just you know, talking about your own religious laws or whatever, you guys deal with it. I don't want to be bothered with that. So then they kind of took the law into their own hands when they started beating Sosthenes and all these things. But Paul ministered there for 18 months. Now, what was the church of Corinth like? So we already spoke briefly regarding the Corinthian church, but let's expand on it a bit. Uh, the society and culture of Corinth. Like any large city... And it was a large city, not maybe by our standards of a large city, but a large city nonetheless. Um, Corinth was a cosmopolitan melting pot, okay? Again, being where it was located geographically, it would have attract business from all over the known world at that time. So it was a center for sports. They had the, what was called the Isthmian Games there, which was second only to the Olympic Games, it was a center for music and theater. Corinth boasted of an 18,000-person theater and a 3,000-person concert hall. We talked a little bit about religion, but again, that Acro-Corinth, a large hill just outside the city, uh, sported the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and working in the temple were prostitutes, which was the origin of the term Corinthian girl. Okay, so just like the old song from the Beach Boys, I wish they could all be California girls. Well, a Corinthian girl was probably very different from a California girl. Corinthian girls were loose morally, so to speak. Okay, They were not the kind of girls you would want your sons to date <laughs> Okay, if you cared about such things. A woman of questionable morals. And again, philosophy, the Corinth was the center for the sophists, a group of people known for their rhetorical skills. So just like any major city in the world today, right? You have sports, you have culture, you have religion, and you have the intellectual, uh, you know, philosophical uh, pursuits that are going on there. And this is the atmosphere in which Paul ministered to the people of Corinth. So he ministered to a very 
It's, I even hesitate to call it a secular city because it was a very pagan religious city. Okay? So, you know, it's, it's, it's very unchristian-like. It's, it's very, you know, even very un-Jewish-like, but not unlike a lot of cities that we would see today. I mean, even today, you know, the secular, you know, if there's, there's you know, are there really any secular people out there? I mean, they're probably following some kind of, you know, civic religion, the religion of, you know, environmentalism or the religion of this or that or the other thing. They're very religious about those things. But from what we know of the city of Corinth and of the Corinthian church, the prevailing problems in the church, again, were the Corinthians' pride and their immaturity. Okay? Their pride and their immaturity. As far as pride goes, it's difficult to preach the gospel to people who think they lack nothing. Okay? If you're trying to preach the gospel to someone and they feel like they have everything they need, it's difficult to get that gospel to penetrate that type of mindset. Right? What did Jesus tell his disciples in the gospels? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, you know, in other words, because a rich man doesn't think he has any need. He's got everything he wants. Right? It's, it's also very difficult for those who are sort of religiously self-righteous, like the Pharisees, to recognize their need for a Savior. So this pride, whether it's pride in materials, whether it's pride in your own religious achievements, it's very difficult to get the Gospel to penetrate a heart of pride. And even though the, Corinthian, the Gospel took hold in Corinth, this pride and arrogance continued to plague the church. In fact, you can flip back to 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 4, verse 8 of chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians. Paul says this in a sarcastic way. He's not saying this seriously. Where he says, Now ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. He's saying, so now you have everything you need? You think you have everything you need? You think you're already reigning as kings? I wish that were the case. Because then we would reign with you. So they were very full of themselves. They had this sense of pride in their own achievements. And you kind of hint at, you can kind of get a hint of that even in the first chapter, where he says in verse 5 of chapter 1. In everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. They were a very gifted church. Right? You know, they, they struggle with spiritual gifts. We'll see that they have questions regarding spiritual gifts later in the letter. But they were a very gifted church, spiritually speaking. They were a very knowledgeable church, spiritually speaking. But they also had this sense of immaturity. So pride and immaturity. Their immaturity caused them to form factions. That's why you have those contentions that are reported from Chloe's household. They sort of segregated themselves around very popular teachers. So they'll say, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow you know, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. I follow Peter. And then you've got the pious group that says, well, we just follow Jesus. Okay, We don't follow any of these human teachers. But... They started to form factions around popular ministers, popular speakers, popular teachers. 
Their immaturity caused them to boast in their liberty in regards to sexual morality. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 5. But they were, you know, it was reported that there, were, there was a person who started to have an illicit affair with his, I think it's his mother-in-law or something like that. And then Paul says, and you are boastful about this. It's like, what is up with this? It's like, this is happening, this ought not to happen, but it's happening, and you're, you're boasting about it. What is going on in this church? They were a very immature bunch. In fact, I think in chapter 3, regarding the back to the factions, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So he's saying, look, you guys ought to be more mature in your faith, but you're not. So I have to speak to you like babies. <laughs> I have to speak to you as if you are fleshly instead of spiritual. Their immaturity also caused them to have many misunderstandings with regard to Christian doctrine, which is what the second half of the letter is. Another thing the Corinthian church struggled with is philosophical dualism. This was very popular Greek way of thinking back in those days, going all the way back to the time of Plato, this philosophical dualism. And by dualism, I mean basically they looked at the world and they said, well, okay, there's, there's material things like, you know, this, this, this is material, this is material, our bodies are physical, but then there's also a spiritual realm. You know, so our bodies are, you know, are sort of just these vessels for our spirits. And when the body dies, the spirit goes to where it needs to be. And the body, that's evil. That's part of this world. It decays and, and it just goes back to the earth. We, what we want to do is we want to get up to the spiritual realm. So you have this very dualistic way of thinking. Spirit good, physical matter bad. So again, we see this in regards to their views of sexual morality. It's like, who cares what you're doing in the body, right? If I'm having an illicit sexual affair with my mother-in-law or whatever, who cares about that? It's just the body. And Paul's like, he'll say, it's like, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Sanctify the Lord with your bodies as well. We see this in regards to their food when they eat. It's like they had a saying, it's like the stomach for food and food for the stomach. Who cares what we put into our, you know, what we shove into our faces? And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. But we also see it in regards to the resurrection. They had questions over the resurrection. It's like this went against the philosophical way of thinking of the day. Why would the body, which is bad, be resurrected? It's like they did, so they didn't, they had a hard time believing the resurrection. Paul writes an entire chapter, chapter 15, dealing with not only the resurrection of Christ, but also the resurrection of our own bodies. Okay, part three the overview of 1 Corinthians. Okay, so now we're going to sort of just go through a, in very brief detail what's going on in this letter. But just a few opening thoughts. First, as we said, 1 Corinthians is an occasional letter. It means unlike Romans or Ephesians, 1 Corinthians was written to an actual church to address actual issues. And no other letter other than 2 Corinthians itself is as personal as this one. 2 Corinthians is probably Paul's most personal letter. This one probably is a close second. 
He lays out his heart and he goes to great lengths to address this church. And why not? He spent 18 months with them. This church was sort of like his little problem child. Of all of his, if the church were his children, this would be the problem child. And as is usually the case, if you have more, you know, if you have multiple children and one of them is the problem child, you end up spending more time with the problem child than you do with the good children. And you notice he wrote two letters to the Corinthians, only one letter to like Philippians and the Colossians. Uh, and he spent 18 months with them and you know, not so much time with the other churches. So this church was very close to him. Now it may come as a surprise to learn that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter Paul wrote to this church. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Not to have relationships with the sexually immoral. I wrote to you in a previous letter. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians <laughs> because it's not the first letter he wrote to the church. In fact, it's possible Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. So you have this one mentioned here in chapter 5, verse 9. Then you have the actual letter of 1 Corinthians. And then if you like, you can turn there if you want. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. So he, Paul writes this tearful letter, and then he writes 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians, if you want to look at it that way. Now, this raises a question. Are those other missing letters that we don't have of Paul to the Corinthian church, are they also Scripture? So if we were to find that first letter that Paul references in chapter 5, verse 9, would we then need to add a 28th book to the New Testament? Or if we find that tearful letter, would we have to add now a 29th book to the New Testament? I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say no for this reason. Two things. One, we know that Paul wrote much more than what we have preserved here in the New Testament. Okay? And inspiration is situational. So, I mean, if Paul wrote a grocery list to go to the, you know, the Corinthian version of Brown's grocery store, and he said milk, bread, butter, cheese, would that be inspired? <laughs> Did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul's grocery list or his to-do list? No. Not everything Paul wrote was inspired, but what Paul wrote was in, that was inspired is included in this. So for whatever reason, providence of God, the Holy Spirit decided that those other two letters that are mentioned in the Corinthian letters that Paul wrote to that church are not necessary for us to have. And it could be that, you know, that tearful letter, perhaps Paul was maybe a little more or maybe a little less gracious than he wanted to be. Maybe he was a little harsh to them because sometimes as a parent, you have to be harsh to your child. You know, and maybe he was harsh to this church, which is why it was a tearful letter. But anyway, now let's look on the 30,000 foot view of 1 Corinthians. So buckle up. We're about to ascend. Put your trays in the upright position. Make sure your seatbelts are fastened. We are going to ascend and give a high-level overview of 1 Corinthians. 
Again, 1 Corinthians is comprised of two main parts. Paul's response to a report that he got from the household of Chloe and a letter from the church asking Paul for some advice. We see early in the letter that Paul is speaking about the report by the brothers of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 11. Now, divisions in the church are not necessarily a bad thing. When you have contentious people spreading false doctrine, you want to eliminate them from the church. You need to avoid such people. We looked at that at the end of Romans a few weeks back. But the Corinthian the church was not splitting over doctrine. The Corinthian church was splitting over various teachers and forming factions, forming cliques, if you will. This is a blow to Christian unity and it is bad for the church. So Paul will later go on and talk about how the cross of Jesus Christ is what keeps the church together. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I, I resolve to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. That is the message that I have delivered unto you. So it is, uh, it is the, the gospel is not about clever words. The gospel is not about smooth speech. The gospel is not about how, how good of a teacher you are. The gospel is about the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is what unites. If you are dividing over teachers, then you need to be uniting over me the message. That's the point Paul wants to make. The power is in the simplicity of the message. Christ crucified. And then throughout the remainders of chapters 2 and 3, Paul contrasts the spiritual with the carnal or the, or the, the natural, which is where he goes to them and says, look, you are acting like a bunch of carnal, natural men. Okay? Spiritual truth can only be properly understood by a spiritual mind. The natural mind, as we see in chapter 2, verse 14, the natural mind cannot understand the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. And as we saw in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul rebukes them because they are being silly, they are being carnal, they are not acting like Christians. He has to treat them like little children, like babes in Christ, because these divisions betray a carnality in the Corinthian believers. They are acting like unbelievers. They are focused on what is earthly, not on what is spiritual. As such, they display their immaturity. Then Paul closes the first part of Chloe's concerns by addressing the true nature of the apostolic ministry. We see that in chapter 4. And it's not about the apostles. They are servants. That's what Paul will say. We are servants bringing you this message. It is the Christ whom they preach and serve. That is what apostolic ministry is all about. It's not about how glamorous my following is. It is not how many followers I have on Twitter, whatever would be the ancient version of Twitter back in that day. It's not how many people are liking my pictures on the ancient version of Facebook. It is whether I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul addresses some other concerns from Chloe's group. Uh, we have a case of incest in the church. We have various lawsuits being raised between believers in the church. And then you have the problem of sexual immorality in the church. And Paul will deal with those issues in chapters 5 and 6. And then when we get to chapters 7 through 16, Paul now addresses the questions that the church had for him. 
church, uh, questions on whether, you know, worship, questions on doctrine, things like that. And there's a familiar formula. We kind of looked at it when Paul uses as he moves from topic to topic about their letter. He says, now concerning the things which you wrote. Now concerning this. Now let's turn to the subject of that that you wrote to me about. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, they had questions concerning marriage. They had questions about those who were or are currently married. They had questions about those who have never married or are considering marriage. What's, you know, and the idea is like considering the, the climate that they were in, in this, time, this day and age, in that city, considering that Paul's message was that, you know, Christ's return is imminent. It's like, if we're married and I'm a believer and, my, I, you know, and, and then my wife is not a believer or my husband's not a believer, should I divorce them? Paul's going to say, no, don't do that unless they don't want to be with you anymore. He says, what if I'm not married? Should I, should I even pursue marriage? It's like, if you can't control yourself, you better pursue marriage. <laughs> so he goes through very practical issues in this. In chapters 8 through 10, we see the familiar issue of food sacrifice to idols. We saw this in Romans we're going to see even more in detail here in 1 Corinthians. And issues, again, surrounding the idea of Christian liberty. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul addresses various questions regarding Christian worship. We're going to have that very controversial passage at the beginning of chapter 11 regarding head coverings for women in church. I can't wait to get to that passage. How many people think I'm serious about that? <laughs> um, you have the celebration of the Lord's Supper. How do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Then you have the exercise and use of the spiritual gifts in the context of worship. And then chapter 15, the great chapter on the resurrection, Paul answers various questions that they had regarding not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, but the resurrection of our own bodies, the believers being raised in Christ. And then finally, Paul answers some questions and queries about the collection that he is um, gathering for the church in Jerusalem. So that's the 30,000-foot overview of 1 Corinthians. Again, he's addressing and, and challenges here for a, a church that is struggling with certain issues. Now, in the time I have left, I briefly just want to look at Paul's greeting here in the first couple of verses of chapter 1. Uh, we already saw how Paul begins highlighting his apostolic uh, credentials here, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, specifically sent and commissioned by our Lord himself. He says, through the will of God, we all know Paul's history, how he was converted to the Christian ministry. It was a, put it this way, if, if the Holy Spirit did not act in Paul's life, Paul would still be a happy Pharisee, persecuting the church. This was by the will of God. But look at how he addresses the church in Corinth in, in verse 2 there. Again, this is a church struggling with a lot of issues, moral issues, theological issues, uh, personal issues. Yet look how he describes them. He says they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are called to be saints. And that they, they are grouped together with all those who call upon the name of our Lord. In other words, they are still believers, <laughs> struggling as they are with all of the issues that they are struggling with. They are still 
sanctified by the Spirit of God. They are still called out of the world to be saints, to be those who are set apart for the ministry of Christ. And they are grouped together with everyone who calls upon the name of the Christ, not just those in Corinth, those in Philippi, those in Thessalonica, those in Berea, and so on and so forth. The Corinthian church is a struggling church, but through it all, they are still sanctified and called to be saints. And Paul's letter then calls them to act like it. It's like, you are Christians. You are sanctified. Now start acting like it. And we will look at the rest of the introduction, the first nine verses, Lord willing, next week on the 10th.